0: Podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner located here in the Columbus, Ohio office of Reminger. I also happen to be an adjunct faculty member at Capital University Law School, teaching a number of litigation-based courses, including a course in ride-sharing and autonomous vehicle litigation. And I also happen to be a co-author of a recent book published by the American Bar Association on ride-sharing law and liability.
1: And my name is Kenton Steele. I'm an associate here in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And in addition to uh, my legal uh, work as a civil defense attorney, I'm also an adjunct faculty member at Capitol University Law School, teaching a course on ride-sharing Liability uh, and Litigation, and am one of Zach's co-authors on the book he mentioned that was recently published by the ABA. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. Exponential technological advances in the last two decades have transformed how we travel, how we do business, and how we communicate. Nearly every part of our daily lives are evolving and changing to incorporate the benefits offered by these new technologies. And while in many ways, new technologies offer convenience, they can also create uncertainty. For instance, how does using an in-home smart speaker impact one's right to privacy? Are ride-sharing services safe? Who is responsible if I buy a defective product from an online retailer? Are cryptocurrencies the wave of the future or a passing fad? This podcast will explore these questions and others related to emerging technologies and will offer insight into how the law is responding to the new issues arising in our increasingly technologically advanced world.
0: On today's podcast, we're going to be discussing driver classifications and legal claims arising from in the ride-sharing context. While most of us are familiar with ride-sharing in some degree, these two aspects of driver classification and the legal claims asserted against ride-sharing companies seeks to take take a more in-depth look into how these two legal issues play out in the ride-sharing context. So, uh, kind of as we kick off, let me ask the first question to you, Kenton. What are the legal issues that can arise in the context of ride-sharing?
1: Well, there are certainly, obviously, a lot of different issues that can come up, whether that be related to regulatory compliance uh, or other issues related to how statutes and and enacted laws impact ride-sharing. But by and large, most of the issues that we see arising from ride-sharing stem from the way in which the relationship between the ride-sharing company or ride-sharing operator and the drivers that that use that platform uh, is defined. The the nature of that relationship and and the ins and outs and the technicalities of that relationship are really sort of the primary source where legal issues uh, stem from. Now under this broad category of worker classification issues there are two primary areas of law where questions can come up now the first is employment law and the second is in tort law with employment law the issues that that frequently arise are what benefits or employment law protections drivers are entitled to in the area of tort law the, the primary question is how responsibility for the cost of injuries uh, that, that come from an accident are split up between the ride-sharing driver and the ride-sharing company.
0: Now, one of the things I heard you mention and kind of the terms used was worker classification. What do you mean by that? And kind of, ex- if you could, kind of explain the worker classification to us.
1: There is, a, it is certainly an, an old question in the law uh, of how workers are classified. And what I mean by classified is what benefits are they entitled to? Um, how should they be treated under the law? And historically, there have been two categories. Workers are either an employee or they're an independent contractor. And deciding sort of which bucket a worker falls into has a significant impact on many, many issues. So when considering this question of how a worker should be classified, there's really one touchstone or, or primary issue that uh, is important to keep in mind. The crucial issue on the question of how a worker is classified is control. What level of control does the hiring party have, what rights do they have to control the actions of the hired party, the worker? The higher the degree of control, the more likely it is that a worker is an employee. If the hiring party has less control, it's more likely that the worker is an independent contractor. And <clears throat> sort of it, giving a little more detail to that explanation, the way it's it's typically laid out is that when you're talking about an employee, you're talking about a worker who is given a task to complete and they're given instructions on how to go about completing that task that they're expected to follow. Uh, by contrast with an independent contractor, that type of worker is given a task to complete, but they're allowed to use their own uh, judgment to determine how best to go about completing that task. That's, that is... that um, is what we mean when we talk about control in this setting. Now, that's a little surface level. And when you say the primary question is one of control, that really doesn't do a lot to answer uh, what it is that we're talking about. So to help deal with this, courts have developed a lot of different tests to analyze whether sufficient control is present or retained by the hiring party to classify the worker as an employee. Uh, one of the most famous tests that was set out by the U.S. Supreme Court in the uh, NLRB case um, in, in almost 50 years ago is really a 12-factor test that walks through a lot of different considerations, including how important the type of work that's being performed is to the overall operations of the business, who sets the hours for uh, how long the worker is expected to do the task, when and where the job is performed, and depending on how those questions are answered, that is what ultimately uh, assists the court in making the determination of whether control is present in a sufficient degree to classify an employee as a worker, or if that control is not present, um, then the worker will be an independent contractor. And while I mentioned that 12-factor test from the U.S. Supreme Court, Uh, There are a lot of other tests that are used in different jurisdictions or when different issues are uh, being raised. So with respect to the employment law context, there are a lot of more simplified tests that are state specific or are specific to individual protections uh, in various employment laws uh, in, in federal law.
0: Now, sticking with this topic of worker classification, what positions have the ride-sharing companies taken with respect to how they classify
1: the drivers? Well, in short, ride-sharing companies have uh, generally been very insistent that drivers should be properly classified as independent contractors. Now, in, in making this statement, what ride-sharing companies are really doing is they're trying to distance themselves from the transportation aspect of their company. Uh, the the ride-sharing companies emphasize that drivers have a tremendous amount of flexibility in that drivers can decide when they want to start accepting rides or start stop accepting rides. There are no set hours that are required by a ride-sharing company. Um, <clears throat> in 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 making these arguments, what ride-sharing companies have have said is that they're not transportation companies, but rather they're technology companies. In some of the court cases dealing with this, what the uh, ride-sharing companies said is that they should be considered more like a phone book than a taxi service. Uh, and the, the gist of that argument is that the service that ride-sharing companies claim to provide is not that they provide drivers, but that they provide a platform where Drivers who are independent contractors can be paired with riders who are looking for transportation. Um, Now, (laughs) drivers, on the other hand, of course, have uh, rejected these positions and want the enhanced protections that come with being classified as an employee. And in some of the few cases that we've seen, the arguments made by the ride-sharing companies that they should be considered more like a phone book than a taxi service were not well received by the court. Uh, in fact, one of the one court in uh, California who considered this question really quickly rejected the ride sharing company's arguments and, and went so far as to say that it was obviously wrong um, for the ride sharing company to claim it was not a transportation company.
0: Now, you mentioned that the courts have not been receptive to the argument that drivers are independent contractors. Does that mean that the drivers are classified as employees?
1: Not necessarily. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of different tests that are used to determine how a worker should be classified. And those tests change not only by jurisdiction, but based on what question is before the court, whether or not it's a question of Uh, tort liability, or a question of protection for employment laws. And with that in mind, it's also important to keep in mind that the laws and regulations related to ride sharing have continued to evolve and develop in recent years. Now, in fact, most recently uh, in California, a ballot initiative was passed, Proposition 22, which... um, dramatically impacts this analysis and really creates a sort of unique specialized classification of worker um, that applies to ride sharing drivers. This sort of third classification of workers really breaks that uh, worker or employee independent contractor dichotomy that has existed for uh, more than a hundred years. So it is not as clear cut as it, it may seem at first blush, as to whether or not ride-sharing drivers are employees or independent contractors.
0: Now, if you would, kind of help, to, help us to understand why is driver classification relevant to understanding who is responsible when a ride-sharing driver is involved in a crash?
1: This question of worker classification uh, in, in the context of Uh, a tort claim, which arises from, you know, an injury caused by a driver, whether that be an accident uh, or property damage caused by a ride-sharing driver. In this context, the reason that worker classification is so important is because of a couple of legal doctrines that are very well established. Uh, The first one being the idea of vicarious liability. So most people are Probably familiar with the idea that if you do something that injures someone, you may be responsible for that. Now, when we bring vicarious liability into play, the employer um, can be held liable for the conduct of their employees when they're within the course and scope of their job, even though the company, the hiring party, the employer, didn't actually do anything. The tort, uh, the liability-creating act was done by the driver, but because of vicarious liability through the doctrine of respondeat superior, if drivers are employees, the ride-sharing company automatically can be held liable for any tort that is committed by the driver. But (coughs) even setting the issue of vicarious liability aside, there are other theories that can result in ride-sharing companies being held liable in the event of a crash involving a ride-sharing driver.
0: Kenton, if you would, kind of explain to us what are those other theories that can result in a ride-sharing company being liable for injuries caused by the driver?
1: As I explained, there's this concept of vicarious liability where the company is held liable even though uh, they didn't do anything wrong. They weren't negligent in any way. Now, the alternative to seeking pursuing a claim against a ride-sharing company using a vicarious liability theory is using a theory of direct liability, which means a, a theory that seeks to hold the ride-sharing company directly liable for its own uh, negligence or misconduct that resulted in an injury. And so the types of direct liability claims that can come up with respect to ride-sharing, um, still in a lot of ways stem from the relationship between the ride-sharing company and the ride-sharing driver. So for instance, um, one of the claims that can arise is a claim for negligent hiring and retention. So as we've discussed in earlier episodes of the podcast, one of the main appeals of ride-sharing is the low barrier of entry for people to become a driver. Now what these barriers are is that Drivers typically have to pass a relatively um, straightforward background check that's not particularly expansive and the driver also has to show that their vehicle meets minimum safety requirements. So some of the claims that we've seen are based on the allegation that the ride sharing company failed to exercise due care or failed to act reasonably with respect to how they are screening drivers or vehicles uh, when they are in the process of applying to become a ride-sharing driver. In one specific case, a ride-sharing company was sued based on the fact that they had hired a driver who had a rather extensive criminal history uh, that should have disqualified the driver from being able to work for the company. But for whatever reason, that Criminal history was missed in the background check process. And unfortunately, that driver went on to uh, assault a passenger. So in you, you can kind of see the difference here. In that setting, in that context, the company is being held liable for its own failure to um, use reasonable care with respect to how the company is operated. Now, other ways that that can come up are uh, related to... The safety of the vehicles. As I mentioned, there is sort of a, a cursory inspection of vehicles before a person can start driving, which is really focused on making sure that all the required safety features, seat belts, airbags, anti-lock brakes are all in the vehicle and functioning properly. But what is less clear is what responsibility the ride sharing company has to continue to monitor how safe a vehicle is. So for instance, if a vehicle is safe at the time it's inspected, but then three months later, the brakes have failed or a problem has come up with the airbags and a person is is in that vehicle and a crash occurs, there can be a question of whether or not the ride sharing company did enough to ensure that the vehicle that the driver was using was safe to operate. So that's kind of an overview of that type of direct liability claim there are other types of claims that can come up. Uh, For instance, there is a theory of common carrier liability that could be used. Now, under a common carrier theory, uh, companies that offer transportation services to individuals are sometimes held to a, a higher standard where they are responsible for providing for the safety of their passengers. And this responsibility that is owed by common carriers is a non-delegable duty, meaning that they can't assign the responsibility for keeping passengers safe to an employee or an independent contractor. So in the event something happens where a a passenger is injured, if the carrier is found to be a common carrier, there can be liability um, much easier than there would be if the Uh, company is not a common carrier. Now, with respect to this theory, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that this is very jurisdiction specific. A lot of states have eliminated the entire concept of common carrier liability um, either legislatively or through the courts. And with respect to legislative enactments, some states, Florida for instance, have passed legislation that sets out regulations and rules for ride-sharing companies, and in that, uh, in those statutes, ride-sharing companies or transportation network companies are explicitly excluded from being defined as common carriers. So, with all of the types of claims that we're discussing, when we're talking about direct liability, uh, it it's very important that to keep in mind that these claims are highly fact specific with respect to who the driver is, what type of vehicle they were operating, operating, what the condition of that vehicle is, and what the law in the relevant jurisdiction has to say.
0: Thanks for joining us today on the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Please join us next time when we will be discussing ride sharing regulations.